you had told me two years ago I was gonna be swimming like within eyesight of a nuclear reactor that is on the water and then I would be running in with a smile on my face. I mean, no, I just certainly would not have believed it, but I thank God I've got a doctor here with me <laughs> who has convinced me that it's not gonna do any harm to me. And in fact, according to a study in Kerala, India, maybe it might even extend my lifespan a little bit. So, not enough radiation, bro. Not, <laughs> not enough radiation. So here we go. Not a single three-eyed fish, not even one. <laughs> I gotta say the most dangerous thing on that beach, there's some like really short pebbles, and I ran in like super enthusiastically. I'm okay, I didn't cut myself, but feet are a little sore, but other than that. A very special episode in a very special location. We are broadcasting, I mean, I guess it's not live. It feels live to me right now. I'm feeling very alive. And we're right in front <laughs> of the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station, literally, I don't know, I'm guessing my rangefinder on here, 300 meters away from uh, one of Ontario's uh, clean air and climate cathedrals. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I'm handing the reins over back to Jesse Freeston, who uh, many of my listeners will know, um, especially if you went all the way back, 85 episodes back to uh, episode one. Uh, Jesse really helped get this whole podcast off the ground. We had a reflections episode, I think 25 uh, episodes in. Mm -hmm. It's, it's been too long, Jesse. Welcome back. And I'm, I'm kind of handing the reins over, and uh, you're, you're the boss. You're the it's, host. I mean, it's worked out really well in the past, at least for me. I've always had a good time coming on here and taking control. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, which you don't always hand over easily, right? right I mean, like, right. for example, the discussion we've been having for the last uh, three minutes is whether or not I'm allowed to call this uncouple. Right. Right. So right. I, I like to think of like, that's what I do. I come in here every once in a while and I uncouple what's been going on so that we can all under enough. understand it. You know? Fair enough. Um, Fair enough. And uh, or to, to, to what are the lessons like? What are the lessons we can pull out and bring in somebody who maybe not an engineer or a scientist necessarily. Right. Just sort of talk about the communications aspect here and how are we communicating and all this stuff. So starting with that, demystify this for me. My, my hair's still wet. I'm still wet. I just jumped in water uh, that I think maybe about four days ago, I was listening to a podcast involving with somebody from the Clean Air Alliance here in Ontario right. who was describing the threat of this building in ways that would make what I just did sound absolutely insane and masochistic and potentially suicidal like jackass like a jackass stunt i do feel maybe, a little right? i loved jackass as a kid my friends and i used to do some vhs stuff jackass right. style things jumping off off of things we shouldn't be jumping off of and stupid stuff like that sure. and it really i did feel the energy of that <laughs> like you know, reverberating in me you know yeah um, I, as we was were doing it, it was it angela bischoff by chance that you were listening to yes yes yeah, so, so angela yeah. bischoff god bless her um, is a ardent anti-nuclear activist here in Ontario. Um, she's one of the kind of two people running the Ontario Clean Air Alliance, which is very ironically named uh, because they're a group that I think really exists primarily as an anti-nuclear force. Um, they were uh, very involved in lobbying for a coal phase in Ontario. Very good thing. Um, we achieved the greatest greenhouse gas reduction in North America uh, by getting 25% of our grid cleaned up, getting coal off of it. But 
they wanted that to be done with natural gas. Um, the Clean Air Alliance did. They were taking money. About 10% of their uh, budget was coming from Enbridge and Union Gas. Um, as recently as 2009, 2010, it's in their report. Um, you know, fully uh, at that time when they published the report, I guess the natural gas wasn't such the bogeyman that it is now. In any case, that nuclear, that coal phase was accomplished with nuclear. The uh, Angela is still uh, one of the the premier anti-nuclear voices. Incidentally, also an anti-vax uh, figure. I'm not sure how she feels about the COVID vaccine. I don't want to misrepresent that per se, but certainly uh, she was um, against the, uh, the uh, Gardasil vaccine, came out strongly against that at some point. So anyway, I don't want to get too uh, unrolled there, but it's important because this plant, um, you know, I think has been vilified. And I mean, even myself, before I was a, a nuclear advocate, um, you know, just to situate ourselves, this plant is about 40 kilometers from downtown Toronto, Canada's largest metropolis. Um, and I used to drive past this plant not infrequently. And um, I used to kind of drive a little faster when I saw the Pickering sign. I used to hold my breath, <laughs> which is just hilarious because this puppy doesn't put out any air pollution at all. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's for me too, Jesse, this is a pretty uh, drastic kind of shift. Yeah, so take... take Take me through as a, as a doctor here, like what right. did I just expose myself to? I fully submerged myself, uh, my ear cavities were exposed, my nasal cavities right. were exposed. Right. In a, at a distance at which if somebody was to put a for sale sign up over there, I could read it clearly. Right. Like right. with my glasses. Right. You know? I mean, we swam in Lake Ontario. Um, I mean, the Great Lakes, for those, most of the listeners are international here. I mean, it's a, it's a huge water system, fresh water system. Um, you know, the size of each lake is like the size of a small country. I think I had a Taiwan guest on saying, like, my country would fit in one of your lakes. Um, and, yeah, I mean, this nuclear power plant um, uses cooling straight from the lake. We don't have cooling towers here, so which makes it even more sort of just melt into the, the background environment. Melt, easy now. Melt Communication studies 101 oh. about nuclear. The word melt we do not use <laughs> around a nuclear plant. Okay. Meld, meld. Meld into the yeah, action? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's the word I was looking for. Uh, a little, little tired here, but... Right. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that the anti-nuclear folks bring up a lot is, is tritium. Um, which uh, is a uh, isotope of hydrogen um, and has a very weak, what's called a beta decay. So there's, you know, alpha, beta, gamma uh, decay, which is a, the source of most radiation outside of, you know, neutrons and, and cosmic rays and things like that. But um, there is a, a trivial release of tritium, um, which is honestly, you know, as a, as a doctor has looked into this, I, I would drink the uh, Fukushima water that's being released into the Pacific Ocean without any, any concern. Um, to put it into context, I mean, people freak out about it because it's, uh, you know, an isotope of hydrogen. It's, it, it creates titriated water, um, H, uh, HTO. Um, and so the anti-nukes will say, hey, this gets into, you know, every area in your body. It could incorporate itself into your DNA or be right next to your DNA. Um, that's dangerous. We have uh, potassium-40, an isotope of potassium that has um, a beta decay 80 times more powerful. We have 40, sorry, 4,000 of those decays every second in our body. I mean, it just comes out of this perception that the world is this pristine, non-radioactive place mm -hmm. when, in fact, you know, we live in a, a radioactive soup um, right. and we've adapted to it over billions of years of evolution of life on Earth. So it's, you know, it's, it's like they freak out about tritium. This plant was built instead of a four gigawatt coal plant. And I mean, and, and that would have been in the 70s and 80s, well before we had a lot of scrubbers on coal towers. I mean, it would have killed thousands of people if this were a coal plant and not a nuclear plant. So it's just, they don't have uh, the perspective. Yeah. And they, they make a mountain out of a molehill, I guess is how I'd put it. 
And a molehill isn't dangerous. <laughs> you can fall off a mountain, but you can't fall off a molehill. Right, so. right, 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 right. Yeah, because I, I mean, you know, I, I, I mostly take what you say as truth, you know, especially when we get into the medical stuff or whatever. But you are, you are, you do have a bit of zealotry going on with the nuclear stuff from time to time. So I did look into this before I jumped into the water a little bit. Right. And the highest levels of tritium that they've recorded, so I can't remember what the unit is. I'm assuming it's parts per million. I'm so sure. it's like 18. Yes. So yeah. that, and then, and then the 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 science says that like the the lower threshold of potentially dangerous tritium is like seven thousand. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. and that's the highest ever recorded level. So I I I I'm 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 taking it on it that I will not experience any ill effects from jumping in that water, other than the maybe small cut I have on the bottom of my foot from those pebbles <laughs> that were a little no, rough honestly, on the way in. I mean, I'm a very pale person. I burn very easily. <laughs> yeah. I did not bring sunscreen. I didn't really like compute that we were going to be sitting on a beach recording an episode of Decouple next to a nuclear plant and uh yeah I'm, it's not I'm, gonna help that i'm also very pale and so there's like a very good chance for those of you watching on youtube yeah by the end of this are gonna worry that we have acute radiation syndrome we're gonna be like lobster red it's not <laughs> acute radiation uh, yeah. syndrome it is just us getting a good old-fashioned sunburn which is like orders of magnitude more dangerous than anything this plant has ever done uh to our health right on so yeah all right so is there anything else we can say more about about the the kind of fears of, of radiation that I think we've mostly touched on that like they, like what would happen if there was a Fukushima type incident here we, there's like people living right there like right next to us right. there's a boardwalk there's people all over the place what's yeah. what's the like terror dome zone here the terror dome <laughs> yeah I mean this is wild like I, I it's I, I feel very naive I've been into nuclear now for three or four years I've got a podcast with 85 episodes talking with nuclear experts I've never been inside a nuclear plant full disclosure this is the closest I've ever been to a nuclear plant. I think for those of the audience that have not been inside one, um, I think this is a pretty unique plant in that there's not a fence, you know, with, you know, kilometers of, of land. I, I, I speak out of ignorance here, but I think it's astounding that we are so close. Uh, as Jesse was saying, there's a subdivision, you know, 200 meters in the other direction of the plant from here. There's a nice little boardwalk and, and kind of touristy area with some cafes. Um, Candus are super cool. Um, you can see there's a, a dome there. That's one of the eight um, the eight reactors. The eight candor reactors are contained in those domes. And you'll see a, a slightly different structure in the background, and that's actually the vacuum building. And so in a Fukushima-type incident, one of the things that happened was, as a consequence of the meltdown, um, a lot of hydrogen uh, formed uh, because of the meltdown, because of, I think, the zirconium rods uh, starting to melt, um, which created a lot of pressure within their building. And that, and because they, they didn't vent the gas, which they really should have done, it would have had a much lower radiologic effect, um, it, it blew out. So this, this uh, you know, there's tons of different backup systems here and containment, but if in a worst case scenario, that building would suck um, any accumulating gases into it, they would condense, fall down to the bottom. So it's it's a it's a really hey, cool hey. plant. How's it going? Hey, that's my fucking name. <laughs> Laurier? Yeah, Laurier. Or basketball. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As you can see, there's people going by, or as you can hear, yeah. I guess there's people going by. Um, there's uh, four kids in the water swimming right now. The interesting thing here is there's definitely days where you're not supposed to swim here, but the reason is because of E. coli yeah. from the sewers getting backed up if there's a lot of rainfall. Yeah. It's, it's, it's human poop that make, can make this water dangerous. Indeed. No, that is uh -huh. true. That is true. Um, our, our primitive uh, Canadian sewers uh, <laughs> 
the the storm sewers can mix with the uh, sewage sewers uh, if, if we have a heavy rainfall. So that's that's when we, so we don't go swimming. You're out here with some some signs as well, some save Pickering signs. Yeah, and you're, we're here with the Pickeringians, the Picker the Pickerites, the Pickerites, the Pictons. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, Picton, yeah, Picton for the record is the name of the worst serial killer in the history of Canada. We're not going <laughs> yeah, okay. to go um, So yeah, uh, the 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 Pickeringians, sure. um, Pickeringians, and and we've talked to a few of them, and they don't seem to be too worried uh, yeah. about this plan. I mean, it, it's it's like. It's really free. It does actually look like this could easily become a horror movie in about two seconds. Like, if you've seen any horror movies involving radiation, right. there's children in the water here, the plant's right there. The plant kind of looks like hell. We were talking earlier, you were saying, like, a few coats of paint on that thing, maybe some information about how safe it is. Yeah. Like, could a, go a, a friend, long way. A friend of mine, uh, Mirto Chipathy, who works with Voices for Nuclear, which is a French uh, nuclear advocacy group, um, they've created graphics and submitted them to EDF, the, the big national electricity company, of ideas of you know branding like you know clean, reliable electricity, carbon-free electricity produced here, etc. And I mean, it would cost OPG maybe ten thousand dollars. I'm thinking just to do that's this. Ontario Power Generation. Yeah, the owners of this plant, um, a small amount of money to to paint the side of that dome with a, a nice message, maybe a nature scene. Just just had a little guy four-wheeler drive by they're taking the garbage out from this very very scenic beach but you know the other context of Pickering is uh, again this plant uh, built instead of a coal plant save many lives uh, is something that guarantees our, our low carbon grid and uh, our big nuclear operator is shutting it down and replacing it with natural gas in three to four years and that pisses me off a lot. So a lot of mixed emotions here on mm -hmm. the beach in Pickering. <laughs> yeah, and how's that going, this, the safe, safe Pickering campaign? What's the status? What's the... I mean, it's interesting. Um, I talk about, like, the Canadian nuclear establishment. And it's kind of like the managerial class. And then there's the working class or the union people. Mm -hmm. um, and the managerial class, the people running the big associations, um, they are really against Pickering. They, they uh, have made the economic argument that they're going to make more money burning gas. They're not primarily committed to climate or clean air. So um, they have, uh, they're kind of our worst enemy in a sense. They've started an aptly named um, or ironically named uh, Center for Nuclear Sustainability, which focuses on excellence in decommissioning nuclear power plants. It's kind of the wrong move in a climate crisis at a time when we need to 2x or 3x our grid capacity. Emmett Penny, one of my good friends, um, talks about these things as, as, uh, as climate cathedrals or clean energy cathedrals. We can't sacrifice infrastructure like this. Um, so it's very frustrating. I, so on the one side, there's the sort of managerial class, um, the major organizations and trade groups that are anti-pickering, frankly. Um, and then there's the unions. And, and there's uh, uh, 3,000 people working at this plant who are going to lose their jobs and a total of 7,600 full-time equivalent jobs that will be lost as a result of this plant closing um, based on, uh, you know, Ontario Chamber of Commerce uh, study. So uh, it's wild. You know, we had a big auto plant in a neighboring community in Oshawa, the oldest auto plant in Canada, 4,000 workers. When it closed, the province was trying to, you know, almost nationalize it, like a very conservative government was going to step in. Um, you know, turn it into a uh, maybe a battery electric vehicle factory, mm. all sorts of plans there. Not a peep about this place closing and the thousands of jobs, high quality union jobs, high tech jobs that will be lost. So, mm -hmm. and the gas plant will have how many workers that will replace it? Like, yeah, I mean, these gigawatts to, will be replaced by, yeah, the like job per gigawatt here is what, like 10 oh, times man. less? Or, it's uh, I mean, a job per <laughs> megawatt hour, it's yeah. three, 3100 megawatts, so there's yeah. a job per megawatt hour. 
I did. I ran the calculations the other day. Each worker uh, working here um, uh, offsets three thousand three hundred thirty-three uh, tons of CO two per year working here, based upon this place uh, being replaced by by natural gas and the emissions intensity of, of natural gas. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, climate heroes work here, and as Jesse was alluding to, uh, nat- modern natural gas plants, uh, you know, they're small parking lots because uh, you know. 30 people can run a large natural gas plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to be losing tons of high-quality Canadian jobs, you know, as part of our green recovery. It, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go through, you know, kind of the, the, the thought experiment. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pickerite, sure. and uh, I'm walking along here, and, and I talk to you, and you've got your stethoscope out, and you're talking <laughs> about nuclear energy and how great it is and clean air and all that good stuff. Right. And, and I'm saying, okay, but what are you going to do with the waste what happens what is happening with the waste right now like how much waste are we talking how dangerous is it where is it sure where's it going to be 20 years from now where's it going to be a hundred thousand years from now yeah yeah i mean so waste from pickering is stored on site right now um in in mostly in dry casks um which are you know concrete steel casks um you know it's shielded it's very, what's inside is very dangerous if, if it was not shielded you would get acute radiation syndrome and die very quickly from this distance or no, like, no i mean no. I, I, it's, no. it's, there's the inverse square law, like every right. meter back, the dose falls by a factor of, I think, three or four. I guess mm. if it's inverse square, four. Interesting. We have a similar rule with sound and in, in, in okay. recording sound, you know? It's yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. You want to get the mic as close as possible the further you go. Hopefully like, hopefully our sound yeah, quality yeah. is good, guys. But yeah, I mean, so basically it's in these dry casks. Um, it's, it's the total volume of Canadian nuclear waste produced in the last 60 years. Um, would fit in one hockey rink, stacked the height of one telephone pole, so I think 32 feet high. That's the, high, that's the waste that we care about, right? That's the high-level waste. There's low-level waste like people's um, garments that they've taken off after doing some, some work, um, which can be put in a landfill. It's not, it's not a dangerous level of radiation whatsoever. Um, we're working on getting a what's called a deep geologic repository in place um, to move this fuel off-site um, and store it forever. Um, you know, again, if, if nuclear waste was a big problem, we were generating so much of it, we couldn't store it on the site, which, again, is, is probably the size of a Costco this this uh, clean energy cathedral which That's powers like the mega supermarket right for anybody who's not in North sure America, yeah. yeah this yeah. this this produces enough power for three million people uh you know the, the greater toronto area is probably about five six million now but you know the old city the, the basic city uh we're producing that much power and all the waste is on this on this footprint here um we're going to move it to a jeep ge- geologic repository which will hopefully be approved and built as the sort of uh ultimate solution um it's controversial because you know, in 40, 50 years, we should have the reactor technology commercialized to be able to turn that waste, the 95% of it that has not been used, into beautiful carbon-free energy mm-hmm. um, in what's called like a breeder reactor. So that would be the thorium? Fa- no, the, no, it's, no, it's this fuel. It's yeah, uranium yeah. fuel. So it's still be the spent uranium. But it's put in a, in a fast-spectrum reactor, um, yeah. which can unlock a lot of the, the unused energy. Um, anyway, what drives me nuts about this waste question is people are like, it's forever waste. I mean, it's not because it's decaying, but whatever. It's, it's, let's, let's say that it, is, it, has a, it poses a risk or a danger um, for an extended period of time, longer than you know, written language per se, right? Mm-hmm. That sounds freaky, right? Yeah. And you know, there's all these engineered barriers that are put in place, like you know, the, the casks themselves, they would be capped in, co- in, in copper, which would you know, be very erosion resistant. Mm-hmm and then packed with bentonite clay, which is very avid at, at, at uh, picking up, you know, atoms and, and small, small uh, molecules and, and binds them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but 
what was explained to me recently was the rock layer that they want to put it in, well below the water table, by the way, um, would take a, a million years for water to percolate one meter through that rock, right? You know, so it's like nuclear waste, again, for people that aren't aware, it's not like the Simpsons, it's like ceramic pellets, essentially. They're pretty insoluble, but let's say that like, the mechanism for, for nuclear waste that's buried deep underground to get out and hurt people, presumably is that it needs to be dissolved in water, and then that water needs to geyser to the surface mm -hmm. um, into our drinking water, into a field of, of corn or something like that. I don't right. know. But again, this water, even if it gets through all these man-made barriers over the, the course of thousands of years, it doesn't move through this rock. This right. rock is stable. It's 400 million years old. So it's... We're not going to drop it into an active volcano, basically, is what you're saying. Like, there's no, there's no mechanism in the earth where it is that's yeah, going to shoot it back out. Yeah. I mean, uh, so it's, it's, it's preposterous and it's playing off of our, our, our worst fears. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm... I, you know, it's, it's funny because sometimes, you know, I get this allegation, you're a, you know, I mean, I have an Australian friend who occasionally will call me a fanatic or a zealot. Mm -hmm. um, I really strive not to be that, by the way. But, you know, when you look into what are, you know, the, the problems levied by anti-nuclear folks, they're issues, but they're profoundly solvable. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not inexpensive to build a deep geologic repository. Like, waste mm -hmm. is something that needs to be carefully managed. But it's, it's very, very manageable. People are capable of it. And I, I think that's something I like about the kind of eco-modern, you know, nuclear advocate world is like we're optimistic about people. We're like, people are awesome. They can do stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, we can split atoms. Right. <laughs> we can move from the combustion era of human history to the atomic, the fission era, which, again, is, is what can potentially save us from the worst of climate change. This leads to something I've run into a few people so, especially some people who know something about the Kandu reactor and a little bit about international relations or perhaps a lot. Sure. And so, so this idea of like, do we trust humans? And, you know, to use this stuff safely, securely, and only for civilian power purposes, right? This right. is kind of the assumption, hopefully, if, we, if you think about all 192 countries of the world having nuclear power plants, this would mm -hmm. be the hope, right? Something like this. And, um, and so, you know, this person that I was speaking to who's very, very learned on these topics was pointing out that the can-do technology that we're so proud of here that's mm -hmm. behind us right now, how it's so safe in terms of a meltdown, right. but that it has this negative aspect, which is that it produces plutonium, and that they were saying, and that, now correct me if I'm wrong, that India and Pakistan, or just India, or, that this reactor played a role in those countries getting right. the bomb. Is that right, true? Right, right, right. I mean, so it's a complex history, and I won't pretend to you know, be a historian or a total expert on it. It certainly wasn't a can-do power reactor that was used to create the... Um, the the fissile material for the India and Pakistani bombs. Mm -hmm. um, it was a research reactor um, that was uh, given to the Indians by by the Canadians um, that was misused to create that fissile material. Mm -hmm. You know, on the weapons issue, it's a real issue. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what's 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 dangerous is not the civilian nuclear reactors or the potential of making energy. I mean. If you have the state's resources and you have people who are trained in nuclear physics and nuclear engineers, like anyone can make any country, a rich country or middle income country can make a bomb, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the potential. 
you can't put that cat back in the bag. Like as much, you know, when I was 18, I would have, you know, I, I was probably a little more geopolitically naive and I'd say like, yes, we can, you know, just with a treaty, ban nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. um, remove and them. And this great festival with Putin and uh, right. Biden and everybody singing while they, they break it all down. You know, China, I think, <laughs> is, is on a massive build out of their nuclear arsenal right now. Like the way we deal with nuclear proliferation is we, we fight imperialism, you know, mm-hmm. We strive for international brotherhood. We create a, a prosperous world in which there's less you know, resource scarcity. And we stop uh, invading the Middle East for oil because we have you know, lots of fish in here at home. You know, <laughs> I'm uh, kind of making a, a little bit of humor out of it. But, you know, but it's a hopeful argument. Yeah. It's so, so like th- and, this movement does really appeal to hope and, and belief in humans. And, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's what's I think, I think one of the most compelling stories is in terms of a, uh, you know, swords to plowshares is that um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, they had such a huge stockpile of, you know, highly enriched uranium to be used in nuclear weapons. Uh, 20,000 warheads worth of highly enriched uranium was um, turned it down blended, you know, made less enriched or they, they blended in depleted uranium. Mm-hmm. Uh, turned it into reactor fuel, and for 20 years, 10% of U.S. electricity was was Russian warheads being turned from swords into into plowshares. So the way to actually get rid of nuclear weapons and and this dangerous fissile material, highly enriched material or plutonium, is to use it in our power reactors. So it's uh, it's a complex issue, but again, I think um, and, and one I want to acknowledge, mm-hmm. you know, is something that we need to be careful with. But again, I think humans are awesome and it's manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we need to move beyond combustion. Mm-hmm. You know, like beyond petroleum. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love yeah. to turn that in beyond combustion beyond and see combustion. BP become a, a, a you know nuclear company. Here, here's, here's, here's to that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, so you, so you fundamentally trust humans. I mean, you've seen, ah. you've seen, you work in an ER, like you know, right. I mean, you, you, you don't, you see the results of not the best human behavior on a regular no, basis. No, but I like, mean, you know, I work in a, in, a, in a hospital, which is a highly complex environment, you know, tons of, very multidisciplinary, tons of people working together. You know, it's a high risk environment. There's lots of super sick people. You know, you make a mistake, you order, you know, you enter an order wrong or it's processed in a wrong way. There's real consequences, mm-hmm. right? And people do die from medical errors in hospitals, right? right? But on the balance, you know, I love hospitals. They do a lot of good. You know, my family uses hospitals. My son's alive because of an incubator in a hospital and a highly trained team that was able to deliver, you know, that kind of neonatal critical care. Um, so I, I find that analogy helpful. I, like I used to be, you know, I've lived a lot of lives. I've worn a lot of hats. I used to be kind of an anti-civilization technology is the source of social like fragmentation and hierarchies. Um, you know, whatever. I was a naive 18 year old, um, you know, heading into an arts degree. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that flipped for me going into medicine and being part of a large complex institution. Mm-hmm. I, and you, one of the things you told me about though, like, like staying with this thing about, you know, I really try to convince you here. Like right. you were talking about, for example, I was trying to understand why shifts were so long for doctors. Right. And you said, well, it actually has turned out that the mistakes you might make when you're on hour 11 of a shift are actually less dangerous than the mistakes that can be made by having an extra handoff of patients per day. So the fact that you only have two handoffs, you have two 12 hour shifts, and the fact that there's only two handoffs of patients per day, as opposed to three, saves more lives than the lives you lose by having tired doctors. Yeah, you know, it sounds so common sense, like, you know, health worker shifts should be limited to eight hours. Um, because you're going to be more alert and like, trust me, that's a good argument, but it was actually, um, tested and researched in Europe and there was more patient harm as a result 
of, yeah, the handovers. It's a dangerous moment in, in medical care because you know your patient intimately, you admitted them, um, and you know, you can only convey so much in a handover. So, I mean, maybe there's a handover culture that can be improved that, you know, I'm not saying it's written in stone, but it, that is interesting. I guess what, so what I'm saying with that is, is at this stage of, of the history of nuclear power and nuclear energy, there are protocols and things that, right. have, have, that, that are, make it less sensitive to things like this, like a shift change and somebody else comes in and right. thinks things are cooling when they're actually heating. Or like, I don't know, I, I, I don't right. know enough about how this stuff works, but like that, those kinds of human errors just haven't led to meltdowns. Well, it just I mean, doesn't, it doesn't happen. And th this is why I think I'm, uh, what's the word, I'm bearish on advanced nuclear and very bullish on existing technology, mm. is that uh, it's a complex technology. Um, and we've learned a lot operationally about how to run these plants. I mean, this this plant early on, the cool thing about candles is you can fuel them while they're online instead of having to turn them off for, uh, you know, two months every year or two. Um, candles can be run constantly, um, and that was a big economic argument for them. Uh, but the early capacity factors, the percentage of the time they were producing full power was only 75%. Um, and we've upped that into the 90, 94 range. Uh, one of the reactors at uh, Darlington, which is the sister plant of, of Pickering, set a world record uh, for a thermal power plant over a thousand days of continuous operation. Um, just we're, having a we're, helicopter. We're going to have to take a little cut here. We're yeah. getting flown right over top. So picking up where we were dropping off there, basically, you know, this existing infrastructure, we, we know how to run it really well. Our capacity factors were 75%, they're now high 90s. Um, and, you know, after Three Mile Island, for instance, the uh, industry started really sharing operationally a lot of, um, you know, human resource management, how to, how to run the plants really, really well, lessons learned. Uh, because, you know, uh, an injury to one is an injury to all in this sense. Mm -hmm. If you have an event like that, it, it, it casts a shadow over the whole fleet, nationally, internationally. And so there's unprecedented cooperation and a, a really strong knowledge base about how to run these things. That was one of the big problems in Chernobyl um, was that, you know, there was this hubris. Um, and because of the Soviet system, a real fear and, and not an openness in terms of sharing lessons or admitting a fault or something like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's an interesting little side note. Yeah, and I guess in here, like our, you know, I remember when I started as a journalist, I started at a place called The Real News Network, and the guy who had started it, Paul Jay, had start, was a documentary filmmaker. I've done the opposite that he did. He started as a documentary filmmaker, went to journalism. I started in journalism with him and went into documentary film. And he started as a documentary filmmaker, and then he, after the Iraq War, he, he said that people were making their decisions on what they believed was true in the world based on their first what they first saw, mm. like their their belief about whether or not Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction was because there was a few days of constant information to that effect. Right. And then the like later information, the well, what better done investigation, all that stuff comes later and is in a headline. Right. So it comes later and it is in a headline. And so, so in the, in the case of nuclear, you talk about Three Mile Island, so nobody dies at Three Mile Island. Zero. And potentially Zero. Three Mile Island, because of, you're saying that like, the industry had to do a whole bunch of like, thinking about things, renewing things. It's potentially, it saved lives maybe because it made better it, it safety protocols. Yeah, yeah. But the point is, is that through my lines in the news all over the world, people still talking about it today. I think, I think most people probably think people died there. It's, I if mean, you were to talk about people, it today. people included in a list of nuclear disasters, yeah, yeah. right? And it's like a disaster in which no one died. Um, and the highest dose of radiation received was something like a chest x-ray mm -hmm. of radiation, right? Right. Harmless. Yeah. 
harmless. And, and I've been, you know, I, I've been listening I, to the podcast of the anti-nuclear people, and one of them is hosted by somebody who, whose big claim at the beginning of every podcast that I've listened to of hers is that she was living a kilometer away from Harrisburg, or for a kilometer away from Three Mile Island, right. uh, when it happened, and that like, and that, that she's still carrying the trauma in, in 2020. And that, that's what we know: the, the danger of nuclear energy um, in terms of you know people dying from it is because of fear. And it's and it's again, I, I say these people to some degree, the anti-nuclear activists have blood on their hands because they create and sow the conditions of panic, mm. right? And, and panicked evacuations are just that woman's like chronic anxiety and worry about this. Like, am I gonna develop cancer? Because I was exposed, in her case probably, she was indoors, et cetera. Like the highest doses received by the civilian public around there were about a chest x-ray. Right, right. Which is again, completely insignificant. And would she hesitate for a second to go get a chest x-ray if she thought she had pneumonia? Right. Not at all. No. Right, so. And, and, the, and like, things that have to do with danger are news. Right. Anything that has to do with safety or upgrading of safety or something has become more safe right. can't be a news item. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Like, oh, a whole new round of uh, operators at the plant like just got their um, containment pressure release badge <laughs> or whatever because they just finished their eight-week program. Like it's like that's not going to be on the head front line of the yeah. Toronto Star. You know, it's like. Well, uh, I think more interesting again. This plant was supposed to be a like just a one of the biggest coal plants in the world. This is what this would have been. That was the plan in terms of the, you know, this was a time of rapid uh, expansion in the, of the grid. And they were like, yeah, we want to build a massive coal plant near, you know, our largest city. Um, and that, you know, the lives saved by this plant is in the thousands for sure, mm -hmm. for sure. And this, this is happening all the time, right? In the sense of like, um, the, there's no follow up on things like, you know, They'll, they'll have like Taishan, was it Taishan yeah, that happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was this uh, fear thing and then there's gonna be news in Europe and they're gonna interview some Greenpeace representative and they're gonna talk about how this is a total disaster and it's gonna be horrible and right. there's not gonna be edible food in that area for two billion years or whatever. Right, right. And then it just, it disappears and there's never a follow-up. Like, like, I don't know, is, yeah. what hap what's happened in Taishan since, that was what, a few months ago? Yeah, so it was, it it's was like, a, you know, it's, a, it's one of these new European pressurized water reactors. Um, it's uh, like three, generation three plus, it has two containment domes um, and uh, you know this is all secondhand from Mark Nelson we have a great episode on decouple about what is going on at Taishan but essentially there was um, a leak of the the fuel bundles right so there was trace amounts of radiation that were leaking into I believe the primary circuit etc mm -hmm. uh, small releases into the environment again totally insignificant in terms of like comparing that to natural background radiation those is a fraction of, of what you just get from the natural background. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, it was kind of turned into, you know, is this another Chernobyl in the making or something, right? right? Um, they did, uh, they have actually, you know, they kept running it because it was a time of peak demand in China. Um, blackouts, brownouts are not good for people. Um, and so they have turned it off when demand went down and they're working on that issue. It's a, it's a new reactor type, again, which is part of why I am so in favor of building what we know how to do well. Plants like this have operated, you know, basically flawlessly with no deaths. Um, for, you know, something like f almost 40, 50 years. So, you know, I think we should keep doing what, what we're good at, um, particularly at a time when we're not good at building new things. Little update, I think we're up to nine pickerites swimming in the water, <laughs> from what I can see. There's also a lot of birds that yeah. seem to be all right. And like, I mean, it's, it is quite interesting. There's a documentary I saw on, uh, on, on the area around Chernobyl, the exclusion zone, right. and all the animals that are living there now. Yeah. And it's just, it's like, this amazing National Geographic or Discovery Channel documentary, incredibly beautifully shot, these incredible animals. And there's these horses that were thought extinct that are now there, like wild horses and yeah. you know, beautiful things. And the, and the narration 
every 30 minutes. Yeah. Sorry, every, sorry, in a 30-minute documentary, like, I think it happens probably four or five times, like, you know, it's like, the little squirrel doesn't even know that, <laughs> that they're living in the most dangerous place on earth. And it's like, you know, that squirrel is like probably, I don't know how the lifespan of squirrels, but it's probably third generation squirrel living there, yeah. you know? And, uh, and it's like, he seems to be fine. You know, he seems to be doing all right. The greatest danger to wildlife in the world is, is human activity, right? And so, I mean, the, the Malthusian environmentalists should love Chernobyl because it reduced, you know, <laughs> there's no humans really allowed to live in the zone. Obviously there's a lot of tourism now and there's a lot of scientific study. Yeah, I mean, it's Europe's greatest nature preserve. It's full of wolves and moose, and uh, I believe it's the Polanski horse. It's a mm -hmm. Polish-sounding horse. It's a, a no. rare horse, wolves, etc. There um, is a bird who changed color, apparently, because of the radiation. Did you see this? Yeah, I think I heard about that. And, <laughs> I mean, there's, there was the, uh, the red forest. Pine trees are much more sensitive to radiation, I believe, mm -hmm. because of the number of chromosomes, some, some kind of a genetic vulnerability. So that forest died. Like, I'm not trying to minimize it yeah, and say yeah. there's no impact and right. sounds super cavalier. Uh -huh. um, and obviously, there was a huge impact in terms of people's lives disrupted, etc. But... Um, Geraldine Thomas's work was, was very interesting that the, the dose from the main radioisotope, you know, other than the iodine, uh, cesium, which has a half-life of, I believe, around 25 years and therefore, you know, has a mechanism to be dangerous, releases, uh, you know, high-energy radiation, um, was on the order of around 10 millisieverts of added dose over mm -hmm. 20 years, which is the equivalent of getting a full-body CT scan. So is so. that the argument... Like, for example, when people point out the lifespan or the half-life of these radioactive elements is to yeah. actually flip it and say, well, that actually means they're not, like, they're, the longer their half-life, the less dangerous they are? Exactly, That's... yeah, because the, the, uh, you know, the atom is, is breaking down, releasing radiation. You know, in the case of natural uranium or, or depleted uranium, mm -hmm. um, once every, God, I, you know, I'm a little pressed on my numbers here, but I believe <laughs> it's in the billions of years. Two yeah. to, I think it's two to four billion years, right? Uh -huh. So every four billion years, that atom splits and releases its radiation. Mm -hmm. How long is that in your body for? How long is your life? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's it's insignificant source in terms of radiation damage. Mm -hmm. uh, but something like iodine-131 um, um, with a half-life of, I believe, eight days, um, you know, is, is breaking down frequently in your body and it's all concentrating in your thyroid gland. And particularly if you're a child, your thyroid gland is rapidly developing, mitosing, growing, that's a high risk time. And so that is the one cancer that we've got a documented uptick of um, in the aftermath of Chernobyl. Mm. Um, what about the people say, I don't trust the Soviet records. They tried to cover yeah. it up by, you know, I, they, they would, wouldn't even admit to the world that it had happened for a few days. Like, right. why would I trust those records? Why? I, th I mean, I think it's more a case that the Soviet health system, you know, fell apart. And so there, there, there's pro probably some errors in record keeping, but... You know, it's not, not an area of my expertise. I, I, you know, in terms of the studies that have looked at Chernobyl, again, um, there's uh, the, the Chernobyl Forum. Um, that's eight UN agencies, hundreds of scientists, the participation of Russia, Chernobyl, Belarus, you know, countries that would have every um, motivation to maybe exaggerate or look at worst case scenarios. You, said, you meant Ukraine, I think, right? Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ukraine, yeah. Belarus, and Russia. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, you know, and, this and the squirrels in the Chernobyl this, exclusion zone are also participating in those. No, this, this represents you know, high quality literature, high quality methodology, consensus between argumentative scientists, right? Mm -hmm. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, COVID science kind of happening in real time, how messy and gross it is. I mean, these statements take years to develop mm -hmm. um, and involve a lot of argue, arguing and sorting out and reaching a consensus, right? So this is what I call a kind of scientific consensus level evidence. And then you have reports that were sponsored by um, the uh, EU Green Party. That's the other report on Chernobyl. Three scientists, um, you know, very limited in terms of their methodology and their review of the literature. Um, you have the Yablokov-Nesterensky study, the founder of Greenpeace uh, in Russia, and the methodology included attributing every 
excess death after 1986 to Chernobyl rather than the collapse of the Soviet Union, the, you know, the rampant alcoholism that followed, the economic collapse, those yeah. health impacts. So, no, no, any any social scientist worth their right. would say when an event like that happens, you you can't isolate factors anymore. It's just totally, like, totally. Uh, and uh, you know, but you watch the HBO Chernobyl uh, series, uh, you know, beautiful filmmaking. Mm. Um, but at the end, the, the you know, there's like the, I think they, there's a statement that there's some controversy about the number of deaths as a result. But I think the, they reached sort of like two hundred thousand based upon, you know, pooling right. these studies. But what you're saying, like, in, to what you're saying, the guy, the main character in the film commits suicide at the end. Yeah, you know, to be honest, I, I got one episode in, and I think like some other nuclear advocates, I just I couldn't I couldn't go on. Okay, this is what I want to talk about. Cause so what? So a lot of people listening to this right now are, might be saying, okay, but this is all novice level stuff we're talking about. Like, right. this is, you know, we're on to bigger and better things in decouple right. and all this stuff. But like, really, what I get get out here is like modeling that conversation sure. with somebody who doesn't really know what's going on. You right. guys need to watch Chernobyl. You know what I mean? Like this yeah. is this is like what th this was a huge hit. Like this totally, was totally. this show is everywhere, and yeah. it's like at some level you have to be able to engage oh, at true. that level. That's true. You know? That's true. That's um, Yeah, I've been I was teaching uh, teenagers uh, how to make videos, you know, for a while, and and at, at the beginning they are all into YouTubers, and I find YouTubers these like narcissistic, uncreative annoying people for the most part you know? right and yeah. like and i i didn't want to go there. i'm like no we're watching dr strange love today like you know right. it's, we're gonna watch you know great great cinema and then at some point i gave up and i got into it with them and then they respected me after that like right. you know right, what right, I mean? right. once no, I, for sure and i was able to acknowledge what was good and what was you know yeah. um and we started making them ourselves and and then you know and then they were willing to like oh what do you like you right. know you took me seriously you listened to what i like so yeah so to just i think it's important for us to watch these things i had somebody that i really trust in my life i was telling them i started to work on this nuclear energy thing and they were like you need to watch dark mm, right? right and and i'm watching dark basically i i'm like five episodes in right now this one is very painful to watch because it seems to be that the argument is that nuclear energy causes time traveling murderers to like <laughs> it's like this is i mean there's still a lot of mystery in the series right, right. but at five episodes in there's these kind of like devastating shots of the nuclear plant at dusk or whatever and then some kid is, disappears in the forest and then right. some guy traveled through time and he's scary you know it's yeah. like uh, it's, I, I just think it's very interesting because we could be here we could be anti-nuclear advocates or activists standing here we could be carrying a, like a placard with a profoundly different message and, yeah. and like it's interesting like you could yeah. set the scene and, and uh, you could be talking to these people and trying to scare the shit out of them yeah you know you can you can do a lot with this I mean this is not the prettiest building in the world but uh -huh. You know, as we were saying, it could, it could use a little spruce up. I wish I, I wish I could uh, yeah, be the art director here. But yeah, you know, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think, uh -huh. I think what we're planning here is to do a stand-up event here. Um, you know, speaking of like being an annoying YouTuber, I think it'd be fascinating to go around with you and a microphone and interview people. And hey, so what do you think yeah. about this? And we actually have had a couple conversations on the beach. Um, one was uh, with a retired auto worker, um, the Oshawa Auto Plant. You know, it's a hundred-year-old auto plant. Um, 4,000 people were laid off, big uproar about that. Um, you know, this plant employs 3,000 people, 7,600 full-time equivalent jobs. The government's not doing, not raising, no one's talking about all these people that are about to lose their jobs. Anyway, talking with this guy, he's like, hey, I saw your placard, what's that all about? You know, and uh, we had a totally awesome conversation. Yeah, he was yeah. like, yeah. Right he was on. totally on board, yeah. I agree yeah. with you guys, you know. Uh -huh. and, and that's what I hear all the time from... Um, I mean, he's also swimming next to it. That's true. No, he's not like average man on the street. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, like, I wonder if Angela Bischoff comes to this beach if she would put her toes in the water or not. Yeah, yeah. Know. Oh, another episode. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Maybe we'll have like a counter demonstration on here. I don't know, but uh -huh. uh, yeah. 
I'm j like, I'm very jazzed to be here. Like, which is strange. Like, again, the me of five, 10 years ago would be like, what are we doing mm -hmm. here? Like, well, so the Oshawa plant, when I think of the Oshawa plant, cause I was, uh, I was working as a journalist at the time. It was the financial crisis. Um, in the U S in particular, I was focused on, I was living in Washington DC at the time. Right. And they saved, they stepped in to save the audio industry. And we were trying to make an argument kind of from the left, like our editorial department, basically making the argument with some union members that like you should, if you're going to buy this thing out, nationalize it right. and make it, put it to work doing something that's not com a combustion engine that sure. like could help us in the future. Yeah. Um, especially in some of these areas for the jobs. Like, I mean, right. you've got all these people who know how to work these machines or a machine slightly like it or right. help you with engineering a new machine. They've got that savoir-faire, that know-how to do and um, that know-how and uh, and it, it's a total failure like I mean those those I mean those plants are back making cars now but for how long I mean they're, they're, right. they're not the most efficient cars in the world they're not right. particularly competitive China I'm sure is gonna have some car soon that's gonna blow them out of the water for half the price right. and and so the where they could have been making a high-speed rail line right you know like nor northeastern US and and southeastern or where central Canada where we are you've got like major centers right that are right next to each other, yeah. like a like a nuclear powered high speed rail line that would that, <laughs> that would connect like like a, like the TGV in France or whatever, like right. that could that could connect Montreal, Toronto, Detroit, and then you look at the U.S. and it's actually perfect. There's four cities in a row. That's right. Right. Yeah. So it's so it's Boston, New York, Philly, and and D.C. Washington D.C. are literally in a straight line. Right. It's almost like they knew they were going to connect them. You know. Right. And um and and they run these shitty Amtrak trains on them. Yeah. And uh it's and so people don't tend to take the train and it, it could be totally different with a little bit of imagination imagination and right. a state with some creativity and some actual attempt and some hope to, to build something differently. Right. We could tax this massive amounts of wealth that we have around here yeah. and build some of this stuff. We could tax the gas. And that's, that's, there you go. that's another little uh, thing that's, that's going on here. We have a campaign called taxthegas.org, uh, which is drawing attention to the fact that in Ontario, uh, we have this carbon tax, this you know, market-based incentive policy to uh, you know, incentivize good behavior, uh, you know, whether it's switching over to a battery electric vehicle because the price of gas is going up or, you know, whatever the other smart choices are. Um, but in our power sector, um, the gas plants that are going to replace Pickering are only paying tax on 10% of their, uh, their emissions at the stack, um, which, is, which is just crazy. So, I mean, if that was taxed, um, you know, for every ton rather than just the 10%, um, that could be a big revenue base. It could disincentivize, you know, the burning of, of uh, natural gas and we'd have money to refurbish this, this clean energy cathedral. So, mm -hmm. but I mean, just like you're saying about Oshawa, yeah, same thing, right? There's 3,000 highly skilled workers who know how to run a nuclear plant. There's all the transmission, uh, you know, infrastructure here. You know, I'm, I'm no uh, transmission grid expert, but I, I know one who is. Um, and he says it's really vital. And we're probably going to have to build a new natural gas plant to the east of the city just to be able to balance out the load in the city. Um, you know, it's just crazy. I mean, there's a lot of concrete poured here. Um, that's, that's a lot of the, the kind of embodied emissions in a nuclear plant. And talking about life cycle emissions of various energy technologies, the longer you run a nuclear plant, the lower that life cycle emissions are. And, and people have done the calculations on Kandu and it's, it's something like three grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. You know, for reference, uh, offshore wind is 10 grams. Uh, utility solar is 44 grams. Mm -hmm. You know, natural gas, four or 500, coal, eight to eight to 1,000, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is like, you know. 800 to 1,000. 800 to 1,000 yeah, yeah. grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour, yeah. yeah. So this is three. 
This yeah, <laughs> is yeah. like, this is a fucking miracle. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we want to get to net zero, not do like creative carbon offsets. Like I, I bought a, a, my ticket for my flight to COP26 and mm. there was an option to spend an extra $72 to offset my flight. Yeah. It's, it's fucking bullshit, right? Like mm. we, need to, we need to move past combustion. Yeah. Yeah, is that, and, and is that the messaging? Like I've been trying to use that messaging a lot. Yeah. Like I, I, I try to identify who I'm talking to Right. I feel like the people that are most likely to get on board are kind of science geeky people right. that don't have an inherent fear of sci- of like technological complex things in some ways or right. um, and they're not the only ones I'm just saying like it's, so when I approach those people I'm kind of like you know this is this is the unlocking of Einstein's gift to us right right, right? like the, this is the e equals mc squared this is us unlock like the, this is that equation finding its Right. Like, it's amazing to think about that we would discover that this climate change is happening and that Einstein would have left us this gift for right. to how to unlock the energy in the matter so we don't have to burn things anymore. And right. I try to talk about it in that way. So I'm wondering, like, what are the different ways you found to talk about it? Is there different people? Do you have different pitches for different people when you're trying to make the, the pro-nuclear argument to somebody who's, like, either totally new to it or perhaps a little against it? No, totally, totally. I mean, I think I've been quite successful, like, in, in our messaging. Um, you know, and we're actually holding our stand-up event this year uh, at uh, the Climate Strike March. Um, and I'm really looking forward. I went to one several years ago uh, when they were in person in, I think, 2019. Um, and everyone I talked to was very convincible. Um, people aren't, like, rabidly anti-nuclear beyond that tiny minority. Um, and they're open to it. They're, they have some questions. You know, the, the question came up like, well, this, you know, deep geologic repository, what if like the future civilization can't understand the warning writing on it? And, right. well, and what, right? Like, That's from the movie Into the Future. Yeah. Great film. When it came out in 2010 or 2011, I absolutely loved it. And I was like, oh, it was, it's terrifying. It's haunting film. Right, right. Um, but yeah, this, this is one of the thing, moments in the film where you go, oh my God, the emperor has no clothes. Right. These people that are going to shove a bunch of toxic waste into <laughs> and, the ground and, and don't know what they're going to paint on the door. <laughs> like, you know. And, and, and like in 10,000 years, frankly, if we don't transition to nuclear rapidly and, and radically reduce our carbon emissions, we're not, I don't think we're going to have a complex civilization. Like, I know it's not cool as an eco-modernist to be like a catastrophist, but mm-hmm. again, the way I look at climate change is we're like a, a, a boat, you know, and we're, we're trying to sail across the ocean. Yeah. And every, every way that we destabilize the climate and disrupt our ecological uh, support systems, you know, like creating more drought instead of and emptying our aquifers instead of like just being able to pull water to the ground, mm-hmm. you know, having good soil versus, you know, it all running off, having rich oceans rather than it being in an acidic environment and losing a whole food web. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those represent throwing anchors off the back of the ship, building, like rebuilding after extreme weather events, destroy our infrastructure. All that slows the ship of human progress mm-hmm. and, you know, and civilization down. And I can't see us flourishing and prospering, you know, in a three, four, five degree world. And so I don't think that those complex civilizations will exist that would want to drill 500 meters into, you know, some useless rock. We, mm-hmm. we choose these sites because they're not, you know, there's not a gold mine. We don't bury our nuclear waste in a gold mine, right? Right, 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 right. So it's just, I mean, it's like these preposterous anxieties, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's as um, creative, uh, bizarre sort of thinking patterns as the kind of Rube Goldberg that I described with, uh, you know, this distributed energy yeah. system. Is, now, to be clear, like, if they're bizarre, if they're irrational, that's not necessarily an attack on the intellect of the person. No, it's, because it's, it's, they, they might have had their attention on totally other things right. their entire life, and they've been bombarded. 
but it's, like, it's, it's a fantastically bombarded. creative um, intellectual exercise to yeah. like think about how this waste becomes dangerous. Like if yeah. you actually think about it and don't think just about like a geyser volcano spewing it in, like I don't know right. what, like what is the mechanism, right? But right. so yeah, figuring out ways that it would be dangerous and, or figuring out ways to make, you know, a 100% renewables energy system work. It's, it's mm. creative thinking, right? It's like this is going to back up that and that you're going to plug in your F-150 and that's going to balance the grid while you're, you know, your smart stove or your, your like your water heater, like, you know, powers down at this time to stabilize the grid and we have flex alerts and like, it's very creative thinking. Like a Rube Goldberg machine is, it's awesome. Like that's why there's YouTube channels with like millions of viewers yeah. and followers that are like, wow, he found that way to like put the salt on his food, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The OK Go videos. Yeah, right? This band OK Go, they're amazing. Like respect, uh -huh. but it's, it's not a, a way to kind of build a climate, both climate mitigation and adaptation system. Like yeah. we need the simplest solutions. Mm -hmm. And if we can plug nuclear plants into existing fossil sites, take advantage of that, transmission like people are like well that's the old grid man the old grid's not cool and it's like sure it's going to be great to build like an internet of things smart grid that can act like we i think it's great that we can sort of match you know demand and supply and smooth out you know peak demand like that's that's an objectively great thing mm -hmm. and we should move towards it but like should we pour all our resources into that to manage a like inherently um unstable generating system mm -hmm. or should we you know like we're in a climate emergency and we're trying to build out infrastructure and prioritize our spending and resource allocation like that's like building this bizarre Rube Goldberg thing. Yeah. It should not be our priority. Like, and, then, and then the other thing that has been revealed to me, and it, it's hit me very deeply because uh, I have done a lot of work around mining, Canadian mining companies. Yeah. Like, so my early journalism was in El Salvador, uh, where they were there was uh, villages fighting against a Canadian gold mining company, and they successfully kept the company out with a lot of creative activism um, and a few threats. Right. I would say. right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, when it came down to it, it was like. You know, it's not going to go well for you if you actually bring your expensive equipment in here. You know, right? Um, right. And so, and they, they to this day they don't have that dangerous mining in a very densely populated area. And, mm. and but anyways, all I have to say is is uh, th this argument about you. You talked about how this this plan here has a life cycle um, emissions of three grams per kilowatt hour. Kilowatt hour. Yeah. Um, the mining thing too, like right. this this uh, civilization wide Rube Goldberg machine is going to involve digging up an incredible percentage of planet Earth, right? Like, right, uh, right. This, this, this is an argument that I'm finding, like you talk, you've talk, told me sometimes that you've kind of given up on greens or like you're, you're, mm. not, you're not trying to convince that group anymore. And with that group, as we're talking about here, like t what message do you lead with? There's so many talking right. points, there's so many things. Right. What message do you lead with? And I try to think about who I'm talking to. And this mining thing for me, has become really something I've gone at with the environmental, especially the old right. school environmentalists, the Rachel Carson type people, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah. you really want like, like just massive piles of dead uh, in solar infrastructure leaching cadmium. Right. Like this is your vision, right. you know? Um, and anyway, so I don't know what you think about the, like the mining argument. How do you do it? How do you do the mining? I mean, you know, it was funny. We were out postering last night, uh, putting up pro nuclear posters. There's, you know, as like nuclear advocates with no budget, and, you know, with like a lot of difficulty getting into the media, I think the media like has a hard time interpreting us and they mm -hmm. probably think that we're, you know, industry show, just the industry trying to find a way to like manipulate the media. Yeah. Um, so we don't, it's hard, hard to get into the media. Yeah. Um, we don't when you're out there with a sloppy bucket of wheat paste. Yeah. I mean, we don't. posters, nobody thinks you're big industry. That's for we, sure. Well, and also like, we don't have the money. Like the anti-nukes like have big billboards in Toronto, right? Yeah. No GTA reactor, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, so this, this is how we do. But it is interesting, like when you're putting up and wheat pasting, like painstakingly putting up posters, you read the other posters that are on the, uh, the yeah, telephone yeah. poles in a way you never would if you were just walking by. <laughs> and there was one that was like a anti-extractivism sort of poster, like imagining, like, and it had some like indigenous looking person, like a uh, cartoon, like meditating and, uh-huh. you know, some kind of eco village around it. And it's just like, like everything that we use that is not a plant, essentially, um, we are plant based or we grew it or we hunted or whatever, like a wicker, everything's not a wicker basket, essentially, yeah. you know, was extracted, was mined. We need yeah. to mine in order to not die, <laughs> like to have shelter over at our At least heads. at the numbers that we have now. Well, even like, with any yeah. numbers, I mean, right? Like, well, there was an age where, you know, I don't know if we were. Like, it's still uh, extraction. Like, we still, apes, yeah. like, like you know, our close yeah. cousins, the bonobos, aren't don't have mines. Okay, we don't, we don't, we don't have houses. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. Okay, point conceded. Uh, but you know, all, and there are tribes still out there that you know. But I mean, all that to say, these, yeah. you know, it's you know, there's a mining impact from from every every modern energy source, shall, mm-hmm. shall we say? Yeah. Um, but when I was talking, when I did that interview with the the uh, former CEO of of Cameco. Um, and, you know, did the calculations on global primary energy, like mm. all of the energy, you know, that we use for everything that we do. Mm. Um, about 4% of that, close to 5% of that is derived from nuclear. Yeah. Um, and Canada's uranium mines, because of our 20%, you know, ore grade, which is mm. insane, most of around the world is less than 1%. Um, anyway, because of the richness of those deposits mm. and that, that kind of unobtainium, um, power is about 20% of the world's nuclear fleet. So that's almost 1% of all the energy that all humans use for everything we do yeah. comes from, you know, again, these, what, you know, in these postage stamp sized mines, obviously like seen from the air or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, it's complex. The world's not black and white. That is on, you know, Denny territory, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're not getting, you know, huge royalties. They're getting like well-paying jobs out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's company towns still. Like, I understand if you're an anti-nuclear indigenous activist um, in those towns, it's not a fun place to be. I'm not trying right. to say the world is simple and black right. and white, but if we're going to compare relative mining impacts, mm-hmm. like Canadians should be super proud of our contribution to, you know, making 1% of global primary energy essentially carbon free. Mm-hmm. That's kick ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And delivered not by a massive pipeline right. to tear up all the indigenous communities on the way from the mine right. to where it's yeah. used. You can like put it That's, in a pickup we, truck. We brought a placard. Oh, someone's holding the placard right now over there. <laughs> <laughs> it says, and they're putting, I don't think they're putting it in the ground it's, or something. It's a kid, yeah. It's a kid. It says no, uh, you know, no pipelines, no link pipelines, go nuclear. Yeah. Um, and I mean, again, you can't, I mean, you can't say don't like mining, go nuclear. There is mining involved, there's uh-huh. extraction, but it's, it's a fraction. Yeah, I think up until very recently, I would have found the concept of degrowth like very much identified with just sort of my general emotional feel about where the world needed to go, or at yeah. least the North, the global North, the, this, it, it felt like we were on a suicidal march, like right off the edge of the flat earth, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, through this just ever increasing consumption of the natural world and- We need eight planets, to, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this, it, exactly, and mm-hmm. the fact that the billionaires are already looking for new planets and like right. I, this whole thing to me just looked like, oh no, and, and so it's like, yeah, obviously degrowth, you know, like this clearly yeah. something that we have to do. This is a project we have to do. And then, you know, I, as I've been listening to your work, obviously, and talking with you a lot and reading some of these, uh, the, the, the work of Vaclav Smil and people like this and actually looking at what, what that looks like and the, the benefits that we've reaped from, from these technologies and from the, uh, some of the things we've done. And so I started with my more kind of degrowth-minded friends, like, you know, we started talking about like, okay, what are the technologies and like the necessary mining and the necessary energy consumption that, 
that leads to a, a comfortable, safe, dignified life right, right. at some level. And then, yeah, maybe we can ditch the luxury goods and, and unnecessary stuff, right? right. Um, and so what you'd put on that list is like, you know, heating when it's too cold, uh, cooling when it's too hot, hospitals, uh, some sort of agriculture, uh, needs uh, some sort of basic transportation needs and ability to move around and right. um, and uh, and stuff like that and communi communications and once you add all that stuff up and if you apply it equally like you're saying you don't have Africans in huts for the rest of time right. um, and, uh, and 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 you apply this equally across the globe it's a, it's it's a pretty high level of energy use totally once totally. you get into like what we would consider a dignified life or like a non-poverty situation you know and i'm I, th I think it's because of sort of where i come from in terms of my ideological formation but like i am not like a uh unsympathetic to like elements of the degrowth argument certainly i think we could degrow the billionaire class um and i mean i'm a frugal mcdougal just in terms of how i live right like mm. I, I don't drive a fancy car i'm not really into big like consumer goods um and i think you know uh the upper middle class of the developed world could afford to you know rein themselves in a little bit like you know, and that might be a controversial uh, viewpoint in the kind of eco-modern community. Like, it, mm -hmm. it's funny, the tribal affiliations, and I'm like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be liked. I'll be thrust out into the wilderness for making that statement. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I am who I am, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, and obviously the developing world needs to level up. So in some ways, I'm making that degrowth argument right now that we need to rein ourselves in in the developed world and, mm -hmm. and raise up the standards in the developing world. Um, obviously, I think that's to a very different threshold than what the degrowthers are thinking, right? Right. Um, you know, it's funny, you mentioned Václav Smil, like, he's actually a bit of a degrowth thinker. He's like, you know, we lived pretty good lives in the 1960s, say, mm -hmm. you know, if the developing world dropped back to that and we didn't, you know, fly away on vacations for a weekend to Cancun, Mexico, like, mm -hmm. we could afford not to do that. We could probably still be pretty happy. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm kind of sympathetic to that. Yeah. Um, I was talking to, it was actually to Michael Schellenberger and his uh, his son had had, um, uh, you know, a God, why am I blanking on this for a second? A laparoscopic surgery for, for an, an intestinal issue, right? And that's a technology that they didn't have in the 60s. They would have done a great big incision. And he was like, you know, Václav says we should go back to the 50s. I'm really glad my son got laparoscopic surgery. Like, right. growth um, does allow for ongoing but those innovation. those flights to Cancun didn't, and it were, aren't related to the advancement of medical technology. No, that... Not per se, not per se, right? So, but, but what, I guess what I'm trying to say, and, and this was a point that Mark Mills made as well, is that, in terms of estimating energy use needs going mm. forward for issues like food, that's quite easy. Like the difference between starvation and gluttony is a, maybe two, three thousand calories per day. Mm. For material goods, you know, embodied energy and material goods, like yes, we, we're, we're using more and more, we have more and more consumer goods, but still that's, you know, by a factor of two, three X is reasonable. We can, we can make predictions on that. But in terms of information processing, mm. I mean, our ability to sequence the genome of uh, the coronavirus to develop the amazing vaccine technology that was, you know, the vaccines were developed in like three weeks. Yeah, yeah. We had to do all the, the clinical testing to make sure that they were safe. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, that's, that's a miracle of modern computing and, and of artificial intelligence and, and neural networks and things like that, which mm. consume enormous amounts of energy. So. You know, I, it's funny, I, I am sympathetic to a degree to, a, to elements of a degrowth argument, but I think where I set the bar on the standards is, is much higher. And we can substitute energy for mass, for resources, in a way that's really interesting. You know, recycling, for instance, um, requires enormous amounts of energy. If that energy is cheap and abundant, mm -hmm. we can do more of it. That's good, right? 
um, you know, vertical farming, for instance, can spare land, right? And it requires a lot of energy, right? So because recycling is one where I get off because it's like recycling for me. Well, I mean, obviously, certain types of recycling. You work in a hospital where yeah. it's like a, where it's a hygiene safety issue to have single-use things. No, but like but melting like, down when steel. When I think of like the yeah. degrowth thing that I'm fully on board with, it's like a culture of like you bring the thing that's gonna hold your drink with you from home and then sure. you take it back home and wash it like yeah some like just a minimal level of material responsibility sure you know what i mean and then and then it could be cool it's like that's my yeah. favorite cup or like, you know I mean, here's I mean? a like, degrowth thing i'm sensitive and, and i don't know whether to call it degrowth right but just like we could have standards on vehicles where like you know we don't need to drive three ton you know suvs we can yeah, drive yeah. a one ton car like right. that's a pretty basic thing yeah which is like a you know a government regulation um, that can do a lot. And that's something Václav talks about is like the internal combustion engine is, you know, X times more efficient now, but we've made no gains in terms of fuel consumption because we're driving fucking boats around. Mm -hmm. That's stupid. So there, there's some nuance here, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, overall, I'm, I'm not sympathetic to the degrowth argument, I think, because of what you're saying, like where it, where it sets the threshold is, yeah. is at an absolute poverty line. And it, it it's like... And they haven't thought of the, we haven't thought of the die-off. Like... You haven't know, got the like, die off, and then you, you can't have the, the, you know, the cake of modernity and eat it too by, by degrowing. Right. You sacrifice a lot of vital things, and you right. sacrifice free time, and you sacrifice mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the basic comforts that enable women you know, and girls not to be well, slaving just, away in kitchens or you know, whatever. At some level, just the argument of like, should we grow or should we like, degrow? Is, right. like, just in like a general like GDP type thinking or something like that, it's right. almost silly too. Like, we should be just focusing on the concrete things that can make life better while not burning up the planet and destroying all the natural sure. world. And, like, you know sure. what I mean? It's like focusing on the same thing. But, it, but it, in terms of an outlook, it, it is interesting how it interacts with something like when you're trying to save a nuclear plant. You know, that, like, I, think, I think what you just said is pretty beautiful. It's like, is, is growth the goal? Not necessarily, but yeah. is like improving human flourishing the goal? Like, I mean, yeah. like my politics can fundamentally be boiled down to like, I just want to see every human being achieve their full potential. Right. I always thought like flourishing seemed a bit cheesy. That's the modern part. Right. You're and not postmodern. You're still in, you're still right. modern. What's going on? I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I mean, flourishing, I find as a, as language from the political center, right? Yeah. I, I hear it used in conservative circles, but I think mm. it's a beautiful term. I like the word. Like we should, we, everyone should flourish. And yeah. so we should be, you know, pursuing policies that enable that. If that involves some degree of growth, yeah. right on. Right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I mean, I think we're venturing into territory that I'm not like well enough read on to offer intelligent opinions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's that's some some no, because basic. it is something we're still talking about the communication thing because it is something you run into. Right. Right. For like sure. You, if you're talking about well, we actually need to increase uh, energy production or elect electricity production at least. We need to electrify the grid, and you right. just run into a lot of very smart people, but who have their their stuff focused, their their attention focused on other things in life. Where their just immediate reaction is like, no, we need to reduce everything. Like, the cheapest kilowatt is hour is a much. kilowatt hour not used, but it's like, but we want to. I'm talking about people everything. that don't know what a kilowatt hour is. You know, yeah. what I mean? I'm, I mean, yeah. I'm still I'm still talking no, that, about that. That is you know that, that is like, that is yeah. like a, a frequent uh -huh. statement you hear right. from like from okay. green activists, right? For sure. Yeah. yeah, and it's not untrue in certain ways. There's like obviously yeah. waste in the system and stuff, but yeah, um, I guess. Before we sign off, uh, because we do have to get going, because you have to go work in an emergency room. Indeed. Um, and uh, how are we doing? Do we have acute radiation uh, impacts yet? I'm going to be like really pink and rosy on I'm, the left side of my neck. Yeah, I'm definitely a little pink. I'm wearing my, my short, short, shortest shorts. Uh, right. So this uh, the high thigh is <laughs> rarely exposed for this amount of time yes, to the yes. sun. So, uh, so yeah, I'll be joining you in the pink club. We're going to um, go for another dip, I think, in the beautiful Pickering for sure. waters. Before we go, what's, what's next for, for Decouple? Oh, man. 
Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, we've got a lot of things planned. Um, what's already happened in terms of new developments, um, dispatched uh, Dylan Moon, my uh, producer, um, to the Belgium stand-up, which I think is one of the biggest uh, stand-up for nuclear events around the world, occurring in the Stalingrad for clean energy, mm-hmm. um, where the Green Party is doing the climate own goal thing of trying to shut down 50% of the whole electricity uh, production in the country and replace it with gas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really exciting to send someone there to do live reporting and to create, um, you know, do a series of interviews and sew something together. So Decouple is kind of gaining that capacity. We are going to be uh, sending a media team, actually, you and me. <laughs> We're sending ourselves yeah, yeah. To, uh, to COP26. Uh, so that's really exciting. Um, yeah, I mean, this is cool. This, this is new, right? Mm-hmm. Doing, uh, you know, uh, getting out of uh, my little studio yeah. and setting up a mobile studio here. I'd love to go to more nuclear plants and do more stuff like this. Yeah. Um, be like uh, like Jerry Seinfeld's show, like uh, getting getting... Uh, comedians getting coffee or coffee yes. it would be like uh, yeah. scientists swimming next to nuclear plants no but I mean, totally just, <laughs> just being here at Pickering like yeah, I want to yeah. do a kind of I don't know is it called man on the street like walking uh-huh. around interviewing people you know being filmed like interacting with yeah, the yeah. public box pop box pop you know yeah. um, we are trying to grow our YouTube channel um, and then we're creating uh, you and I are working on this project of creating kind of three to five minute videos uh, on, as kind of a gateway drug to get into the podcast, so yeah. it's more accessible. You know, the podcast is wonky, right? Mm. It's not as wonky as Titans of Nuclear, <laughs> but it's pretty wonky. Uh, you're listening to an hour to like some pretty highly educated people, and like I think as you were saying, like jumping into episode forty, like what's a PWR, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of acronyms that go unexplained now. You know. Yeah, so um, we're trying to create content that can you know help stir. They start with Isabel Bemicky, and they're like, whoa, what? Nuclear clean? Yeah, yeah. Gummy bears, awesome. <laughs> you know, and then they feed into like maybe uh-huh. some. Some kind of deeper analysis whether three to five minute videos and then they get hooked on the podcast. My yeah. producer actually just messaged me, Dylan just messaged me. He's at the stand up for nuclear event for Nuclear New York and he was handing out um, gummy bears, which is one of the things we do, um, emphasizing energy density. Um, and the person with said, some information, not just here's a gummy bear, yeah. eat it and you'll immediately have downloaded the information. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. It's a tritium tritty, 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 tritty containing gummy bear. 5G gummy bears. Scrambles, <laughs> scrambles your neurons to make your product clear. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she was, uh, she's, he was like, she was like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a producer for Decouple. And she was like, I listen to Decouple. Dr. Keffler, Kiefer. Okay. Anyway, so I mean, it's, that was it's a really heartening story. Like uh-huh. that just a random. Well, this is at a stand up for nuclear event. In New York. No, so so she was at. You did, that's not random. This happened like thirty She's minutes not, ago. Right. I'm just saying. Like, right. I just need to deflate the tires a little bit here. You're, right. you're making it sound random, but she was at a stand-up for nuclear. No, no, she was a passerby. Oh, she was just walking random, by. Random, bro. Oh, yeah. that's pretty cool. So that's cool. So anyway, the podcast is developing. Um, we did get uh, a donation, not from industry, from an individual, which has helped. You know, mm-hmm. which has got Dylan working for me part time. Um, you know, which flew him to Belgium. Thank yeah. you. Um, certainly we are looking for, for more support, uh, to do more with the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love it to be a, like a, a network at one day and have oh, like yeah. diff- other reporters and things like that, more content. It's like a 10, 15 year plan. Um, but yeah, it's, it's continues to be a kick-ass rewarding experience. Um, and yeah, I'm loving it. It's, yeah. I've, in my life, I've been very, I've shifted focus many, many times, but I feel like I'm kind of coming into myself as a thinker and, and, uh, again, just benefiting from, all these wonderful people I get to talk to. It's, it's, uh, 
it continues to be an amazing experience. And we'll be at episode 100 in another, I think, 14 shows. Right. So I don't know. We're going to try and... if we factor in how much you've been increasing production over the... That 14 shows should take about 16 and a half days now. <laughs> some of this. It should be popped out. You know, we, yeah. go, we go in little blurbs. I had like four interviews one week and I, you know, I've had a couple weeks where I haven't done much. But yeah. you know how it is. Yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty excited to be to be coming on and helping doing the doing the videos. Uh, right. I think we're gonna call it Decouple Studios. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, to try and try and be sort of like um, a bridge to the people that have been left behind to like <laughs> at episode one basically. Right. Um, to try and understand some of these basic concepts and some of the arguments and and hopefully get get some good video content out there in the world. There's already some good stuff out there. I've been right. doing some some research for it to make sure I'm not. Uh, kicking anybody in the heels, right? Um, and uh, there's some good stuff out there, but I think we can put out some pretty original work. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just saw your kind of pilot, and uh, Jesse's doing sort of like a John Oliver. Like you're 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 seeking seeking a number of um, of uh, you know. People. My influences are many, right? Yeah, but I mean, you, you do have some like uh, stand-up comedy background, so I'm really excited uh, to see kind of how that pans out. I mean, I I am excited by what I've seen so far, but that'll be coming out soon as well. Mm. Um, again, guys, in terms of and gals and, and humanoids um, and non-humanoids, no. Yeah, non-humanoids, who knows? Sure. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, uh, that is, we do have the Patreon. Go to the, the website and, um, yeah, we're going to do great things together. Um, and, and also, like, I should say, like, a lot of this is about creating, like, it's journalistic and it's independent to a degree, but we are also trying to create like we have a, I think we're developing a mission based upon this like independent investigation and exploration. We're arriving at conclusions. It's not just enough to like understand the world. We want to change it. Mm-hmm. Um, so creating resources that are useful for this pro-nuclear advocacy movement. Um, you know, synergizing with Stand Up for Nuclear, for instance, and, and creating resources that are applicable to advocates around the world. And our first video is on, you know, the ludicrousness of prematurely closing existing nuclear. Right. So that's that's our little sneak preview for the pilot. That's it. And now we're at a very a moment that in the decouple podcast that for me is a very sad one since the last time I was on. Because the last time I was on, I actually paid you a compliment. And I said, you have a great <laughs> sign off. And take good care. Right. And then coming from an ER physician, it felt very good. It felt like you really cared about the guest. Right. Um, it made me think of uh, Brooke Gladstone from the On the Media podcast, who who always finishes every interview with like, "Thank you very much," like in a very sincere, sincere way. Yeah. And you had this sincerity in your voice. And then I put the light on it. You jinxed me. I jinxed it. And now I've only, I heard it. You said it to Jay Harris though. Okay, but on, I, that was recorded. The... That was recorded before um, our what? first time. That's an old episode I released on We Can Do It, and I've kind of given oh. up. On it was a re-release when I was on vacation. Oh wow! Okay, so I I want to make a little mini petition here to bring it to back. bring back the take care. good care. It was sincere. Don't feel like you're forcing it. I <laughs> I deeply regret having brought that up in that episode. I really do, and I want it back. And right. I, I, it just it would it would always left me with a nice smile, Jesse. No matter how much I didn't understand from the episode, Jesse, <laughs> take good care, man. Take thanks, you, thanks for having me on you, uh, Uncouple. <laughs> <laughs> you take good care too, man. All right, man. <laughs>